If you're new with us or uh, just forgot, we're in the book of Romans. We have been for a while. We just started Romans 9. It's the, the middle of it for us. And so we are working through uh, the book of Romans. We'll finish here in June together. Uh, and we're in a section here that we're calling, Did God's Plan Fail? It's kind of the big arching question uh, in, in this section of Romans what happened with this plan with the Jewish people? With If you have a, a Bible, your Old Testament, the whole first part of it. So what is that like didn't work and what's, what's the deal? And so today we're going to really start getting after that. We do have lots of resources if you're interested in uh, a podcast that our senior pastor has created, Steve, uh, where he talks through Romans, all these same passages, and again, resources on our app. We also have some Romans journals. I just saw some out there. So if you want one of these or someone you first came in, there's a table of kind of hope stuff uh, that you, you can take any of that, but you could take a Romans journal if you want to uh, read the scripture and write and kind of take notes. We'd love for you to be able to do that. So we started Romans 9, and today we have a big chunk of scripture, and they have a lot of references. I think there's 11 or 12 Old Testament references that are important to understand. And so we're going to really get into our Bibles today. So you got to put your seatbelt on, get ready. If you have a Bible you like to read, get ready to flip a little bit. Uh, and also, if you if you just paying attention here. You can follow along. Most of those passages will be on the screen uh, as well. And so we're going to start away. This is the beginning of Romans 9. Yesterday, essentially, this is what we saw. We saw Paul, after Romans 1 through 8, explain that there is sin in the world, that we, we actually bring wrath on ourselves. It's really bad news. He brings really good news that God, it's not because you did anything, because God loves us so dearly, and out of his kindness, he comes to rescue us from that sin. And that the gospel that we talk about, this good news, has the power this has the power to save us and rescue us and change us. And so it unpacks that over and over, and it's for all people. And so it's not just the Jewish people, it's all people. Gentiles also, not Jewish people. And so for eight chapters, he unpacks and he, he ends it by reminding us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. It's this incredible news. And the next thing he shares then is this heartbreaking uh, kind of confession that he is weepy, that he has anguish and pain over his own people. Paul, as a Jewish man who has come to put faith in Christ, who now helps lead and start churches, says, I'm, I'm, I have anguish, I have pain that my people, the Jewish people, the people that God has given all of this to, to prepare and point people to the Savior who's come to rescue them, many of them have not uh, continued in that faith, essentially. And so uh, he's heartbroken, and we get to see this picture of a Paul who uh, in Scripture we see him as Saul originally when we meet him. He's actually killing Christians, and he encounters Jesus. Jesus changes him. He blinds him. He actually has scales, they say, over his eyes, and those scales fall off, and now he becomes Paul, a different man. So last week we talked about Paul from being Paul the persecutor to Paul the compassionate and how that works and how Jesus changes him. And so now he's going to unpack for a while here for the next few chapters how do we think about these Jewish people? And so Romans 9, real, real broadly, uh, we see this. He, he unpack, unpacking the, the history of his people. Essentially, in Romans 9, where the Jewish people were before the history of them. That's where we're going to see a lot of Old Testament today because he's going to look back at all these stories to say, God, this is what God was doing. A present, like where, where we're at right now, and the future is kind of hope for what God can do with these people. And so uh, this is our hope. We're still in 9. Partially, I want to share this with you because I want you to know that as we talk through these things, there's some things that might be harder, and you go like, "How does that work, though?" But with this thing, if we if we stop and we can kind of take these all in together, 
I think it helps us get a fuller, broader picture of this. And there's some things that might even feel paradoxical a little bit in this. Like, how does that work if this is true and this is true and this is true? Um, and today's a day where that might feel like that a little bit. And so I want to encourage us that we're going to talk about things that all together really help give a picture uh, of who God is in this. And so, um, yeah, just hold on kind of for the ride here. I think this will be really encouraging to us, hopefully, and, uh, and, and great understanding of Scripture all together. And so we start here in Romans 9, 6, uh, right at the beginning. We're just going to walk through this passage. We have, we're going all the way through verse 29 today. Uh, and so here, here we go. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. So why would he say that? So he says that because he goes, there's all of these people, uh, these Jewish people who were given this history. We heard right before this, that they were given covenants and worship and God gave them all these pictures and these great leaders. And, and those people you'd think they would be the people who'd like be the first to embrace Jesus and say, oh, this makes sense. We're the ones who kind of ushered him in, kind of told everyone he's coming. And then he comes and then we're, the, we're some of the smallest population of those people. It's uh, heartbreaking to him because he says, how did that get missed? In the message version of the scripture, it says, don't suppose for a moment though that God's word has malfunctioned in some way. So Paul here wants us to know, hey, you, if you know your Old Testament stories, if you know the history of these people, you might think, oh, God maybe failed. Like he had a plan with these people and they just couldn't do it. And so now he's started over, tried plan B, or he's met with his, like, his uh, strategy team and they've, they've pivoted. And now we have a new plan, a new way that God's going to rescue his people. Or maybe you just think, oh, God, these Jewish people are bad rebellious people that God doesn't want around anymore. And so that's why there's not a lot of these people in the church. This is Paul writing to people like currently in that moment when he wrote this, there was a smaller population of Jewish people. In fact, even culturally in, the, in some of these areas, Jewish people were pushed out, like exiled from the areas. There's actually like people viewed them as less than around them. And the church sort of started adopting some of that. They started thinking, oh yeah, maybe Jewish people are bad. We don't want them around. Maybe God tried with them and it didn't work. They had their chance and now it's our chance as not Jewish people, as Gentile people. And so Paul knows this is happening. There's a few Jewish people in the church and so there's a thought of like, well, culturally people don't like them and they should probably like kick them out and keep them out away from us. And so maybe the church has to do the same, same thing. Here, there's a danger in this. Lots of dangers. There's a danger here in reading Romans 9 through 11 that we start like we do often in Scripture of this passage now is going to tell us all about Israel or the church or us. Uh, and we forget that really Scripture ultimately tells us something that's really important. I, this, is a, this is a big quote from Douglas Moo, but I think it's helpful in, in establishing this foundation of where, where we're going after now here as we get into 9. Israel is not finding the main topic of these chapters. I feel like that because we are talking a lot about their history and, their, and that name comes up a lot. The main topic is the integrity of God. Is he faithful? Who is actually God? By the time Paul wrote Romans, the general makeup of the early church had become clear. It was composed of many Gentiles and relatively few Jews. We are so accustomed to this situation that it creates no surprise or shock. So he's saying in our church right here today, in 2024 in Columbia Heights, we, most of us aren't Jewish, like ethnically few of us might be, but generally we don't think of the church as like Jewish and Gentile, right? 
And so we think, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But he's, ta- he's talking to a church, though, that is many Gentiles, and it seems om- it could be surprising there aren't Jewish people there. This is a simple fact, was one of the most uh, difficult theological issues that the early church had to face. The Old Testament appears to promise that the messianic salvation will be for Jews. It seems like he's saying the Old Testament says Jewish people are the chosen people, and that's who gets saved, with some Gentiles maybe allowed in. Paul and the other early Christians proclaimed that the messianic salvation had come through Jesus of Nazareth. Why then was Israel not being redeemed? as the Old Testament has promised. Why was the church a mainly Gentile, not Jewish body? Such questions cut right to the heart of the gospel. For if the gospel could not truly be seen as the continuation of God's plan for the Old Testament, then it would cease to be the gospel of God. See, if the gospel isn't, the good news isn't that God's continuing his plan that he started, then it's not the gospel. God would see to have changed his mind or gone back on his promises. This is really, that's really helpful as we walk into this. Hold that with you as we walk into Romans 9 here together. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. I'm just going to read this chunk here of, of Romans 9. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. There's a confusing thing. All that are Israel are not Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's going to hold up this children of the flesh versus children of the promise. But this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purposes of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What is going on here? Let's try to take our time and look through these. We're going to walk through a lot of moments in the Old Testament that Paul's going to use to help us understand who God is and that he's just continuing the plan that he had, the work that he had. So this first part is telling us a story that we actually looked at recently here uh, of when Abraham and Sarah are joined or are visited by these three Seem, there seem to be kind of angels. They seem to be kind of a trinity uh, that comes and visits them. If you remember this, they're having a meal. Uh, Abraham serves them. And in the process, they say that Sarah, who's very old, who, who hasn't been able to have kids, uh, very upset even over that, they say this promise about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. If you remember, she actually laughs. She's kind of like still in the tent and she hears them say this, and she laughs, which is what they, why they name him Isaac. They have a son, she thinks, I'm old, and how could I? <laughs> it's silly. How could I have a son? And then they hear, they hear her, they go, what did she say? And then she says, I, I didn't laugh. Uh, it's this great moment. And then we see this promise comes true. These two elderly people who shouldn't be having a kid or didn't think they could have a son named Isaac. And uh, he is the promised one of God. And so Paul's telling this story. He's saying, hey, do you remember uh, Abraham actually has, uh, actually has a son kind of before this son? So here's a little quick family tree. Abraham and Hagar, a servant has a son. It's a whole other story. If you're interested in some, some wild drama there, there's Hagar and Abraham have a son named Ishmael. And then Abraham and Sarah eventually have this son named Isaac, the promised one, who she laughs. This, this can't happen. 
And God says the promised son, the one that the Messiah will come through, is Isaac. Not, not the first son. Culturally, right, at that time, it would have been your firstborn son is the one who carries on the family, who kind of leads the family, is, is the promised one or the chosen one. And he says, no. So you might, in hearing this story, we might think, uh, well, that's interesting. Well, but maybe it's just because it wasn't like his wife, wife. It was like his servant. And maybe that's why God didn't pick that promise. And God clarifies in here this statement, which is really important for us. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So the word Israel here actually means different things. The same word, those same letters, those same six letters could mean very different things. Last week we talked just real briefly about that. When we say Israel here, we're not talking about like the nation currently that we're reading about in the news. This is God saying the the people, the Jewish people, that ethnic people that we read about in the Old Testament, he's saying some of them aren't Israel. There's Israel, then there's Israel. Well, that's confusing. He says, well, how, how do we know? This is, there's children of the flesh, meaning you're born into that. That's like your ethnicity. And then there's children of the promise that are counted as offspring. There's actually some different ways in church history that we view this. This might help us a little bit. I made some circle diagrams. So there's one where we might think this. We might think there's Gentiles, everyone else. And then there's Israel. And then within Israel, there's like spiritual, true, promised Israel. This makes sense. Kind of. The, so the idea is in this, in this thought, there is an Israel, but there's only some in it that are actually the faithful, true, spiritual Israel. But in this, the, also you, you aren't promised people. You're not God's children if you're outside. So to be Gentile, you don't have an opportunity to even be in the spiritual Israel. And this doesn't line up with even just what we've seen in the book of Romans. And the other way that's become popular, actually just in the last 100 or 200 years, is an idea that there is an Israel, an ethnic, the the flesh that they're born into, a chosen Israel. And then there's like a true spiritual promised church. And that's like everyone else. So there's Gentiles who have come to know Jesus and then there is Israel itself, and they're, they're separate. They have this, almost two different covenants. They believe that actually, um, like the covenants God made with them in the Old Testament kind of continue for them, and then there's like a new covenant for these other people, right? This has actually be, be, had become, a, it has become a pretty popular. Um, this is connected, if you've ever heard of dispensationalism. This is connected to that. That's a fun word. Very exciting. Uh, if you want to look that up, <laughs> that would lead you on many wild YouTube <laughs> uh, videos. Uh, and then this one, and this is where, this is the one that we would say lines up with, check, lines up with what we've read in Romans. That there's an Israel, like he's saying there's an Israel, and then within that there's a true, maybe spiritual, people have used the word promised, Israel. And then there's also Gentile people who are, are not Jewish people, but those not Jewish people and Jewish people, there's a group that is just the church. We might use the word church. Um, but they're kind of the true. So what he's saying is there's an Israel that's within Israel that's actually the true. And these are the promised faithful people. And what's this pretty, I mean, for us, this might feel a little shocking or radical, but in that moment in time, this is unheard of. He's saying the gospel, the good news that was even promised back, like way back in the day, was actually even for Gentiles. Like God has always had a plan to rescue everyone. I always had a plan to say, whoever believes can come in. Which could be really hard for his Jewish friends and his Jewish family to say, but I thought we were the chosen ones. I thought we were the ones who followed the rules the right way and we get in. And 
And those people don't. In fact, the word uh, Gentile is often connected to even the word dog or animal for Jewish people. And so how could those? They're not even human. Well, the question then is he's saying, I want you to understand how this works, though, because I think maybe you have a misunderstanding of who God is and how this story is continued. And so we need to understand that because then that might help you understand how do you treat, how do you view these Jewish friends and family and people who maybe we have pushed away because now we've just almost created a, a new circle that said just Gentiles get to be the promised people and Jewish people missed the boat. They, they had a chance and they didn't get to. And so he's saying, let's be careful here. There actually is people who believe who are, and it doesn't matter where, where they are. And so he's going to continue. You might, if you've uh, been thinking about it now for a few minutes, the story of Isaac, you might think, okay, well, Abraham had a son with Hagar, Ishmael, but then he had a son with like his wife. And so that's, God says, no, no, you did it the right way with your wife. That's why he's promised. So he goes right, he goes, but actually there's a story of that family that helps us clarify that in the end, God here is, is, is promising, is blessing people and, and not because of a system that you created. And now, and not only so was, was Isaac promised son, even though he wasn't the firstborn, not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So now we're talking about Isaac, um, the Isaac we just heard about. Isaac has a wife, Rebecca, and they have sons at the same time. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. These are two people, babies created at the same time. Uh, and they had done good or bad. There's no reason to say we picked one over the other in order that God's purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And, it, and then it's written later in Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So Esau is actually the firstborn son, and Jacob the second. Uh, but there's no reason to say, okay, well, one was born of a different mom or, or one came and was like a better kid or one was like cried a lot and the other one didn't. They're saying, okay, this helps our, our study here, our data to go, okay, they were actually born the same time. Esau was the first, so he should be the first. They're both boys born at the same time. Esau should be the old, he's the older one, so he should be the promised one. And then God says, actually, I'm going to make Jacob the promised one. I'm going to actually make the older one serve the younger one. So now God is, is putting it outside of like, it's not just, uh, it's not because of who your mom was or how that happened. It's, and it's not because you were born, literally born first. It's not because you were good or bad. I chose you even before we had an opportunity to see what kind of a punk you were or not. It wasn't about your birth order or your race or your status or the works that you've done, your babies. But God just picked. So Paul wants us to know, like, he's concerned, right, his Jewish people, and he knows because he grew up in this and has been around it and lived it and believed it. He's saying we we think that we did something or that just inherently by the way, by, by our people that we were born into, the ethnicity of us, that we're better, or God wants us more. And he wants it to be very clear that's not how this works. It's actually the beauty of the gospel is that's not how it works. So he goes on, what shall we say then? This, this actually might, it's encouraging, right? You might go, oh, how cool God picks us even when we aren't great. But at the same time, but sometimes I'm, I am a pretty good faithful person. What about that? And so you might ask the question, 
Is there injustice on God's part? Paul uses this phrase often, right? By no means. And he tells us another story to help us understand. Does it feel like, well, so then God just picks, like, randomly, he just picks some that get to be the promised and some that don't? That seems unfair, unjust. How does that work? Well, he's trying to explain more of this. And so now he goes to the story of Moses and Pharaoh. Another great story, another like foundational story to the Jewish people. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. God says this to Moses in the scriptures. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So God goes the most, a long time ago to like foundational, like one of the, the greats, the hall of famers of the Jewish people, the one we look to like your, your foundational identity as people, the ones rescued out of the Exodus, the people delivered through Moses from Pharaoh. Even in that story, in that moment, God says, I am the one who will give mercy and I will give compassion whom I want to give mercy and compassion it doesn't depend on what you've done or how hard you've worked, uh, but I'm the one who brings mercy. That's what mercy is. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever, for, uh, whomever he wills and has hardened whomever he wills. Remember the story of, the, of Pharaoh is the story of his heart being hardened. It's sometimes he himself hardens it, sometimes God actually Hardens and Sardis uses Pharaoh essentially to show the story. Um, Lynn uh, Kohik shares this story, uh, probably better than I can. God alone accomplishes salvation. She's uh, commenting on this passage. God is merciful and patient and desires his glory to be known. Pharaoh, the God king of Egyptians, was given his kingdom by God so that God could show the Egyptians and the Hebrews, the Jewish people, that he is more powerful than the Egyptian gods, including Pharaoh. So God uses, is using this, is using Pharaoh in this, uh, one who's hardened his heart against God. God's continuing to, to use him in that to show his glory, that he's actually more powerful, better than the Egyptian gods. Remember in that story, there's all the plagues. Each plague is connected to one of the Egyptian gods, and God shows that he's more powerful than the frog god. He's more powerful than the Nile god and, and all in that story. If Pharaoh had accepted that truth, perhaps the exodus would have happened differently. The point is, Pharaoh refused to acknowledge the one true God, and so he sinned. In Exodus 7, Pharaoh turned from God and hardened himself against God's plan. God, knowing Pharaoh's response, is said to have hardened Pharaoh's heart. The Lord forewarned Moses and Aaron of Pharaoh's response that they would not become disheartened. The point here in Romans is that God is sovereign. He's in control. He he knows what's going to happen. He's always there, always in control over history. And no human and not even God-man Pharaoh, Pharaoh believed to be a part God, part man, can thwart God's plans. No human has the right to argue with God on how God proceeds with his plan. So this story, Paul again, right, he's saying, hey, God has, is the one who's had his hand in all of this always. God's plan is continued in the person of Jesus to rescue these people. God shows great mercy and compassion to these people. And this one sometimes is a little harder, right? There's a little, like, my stomach feels a little different. Uh, I don't feel just joy in this, but the, that we can't argue with God. He proceeds with his plans. He does what he wants to do. That is hard to hear. Some of that probably is 
my own heart of like, I want to be in control. And someone's like, ah, but what about us? What are we supposed to do? It feels like in scripture, we're called to do things. We're going to, we're going to get to that. A couple more things I want us to see as we just keep, I want us to just kind of soak in all this, all that's happening here. Paul's talking about not only has he chosen this promised people, not because they did anything, but just because God chose them. But I also want us to see here that God, this passage is interesting. It says these words a lot. I, I love this. It says that he has mercy, mercy, compassion, compassion, mercy, mercy. It's one, those words are, are first sometimes to maybe float away as I think of like, God is really sovereign. He actually makes all the choices. He actually is in control. That, those quickly f- kind of float away and it seems like almost new terms float into my head like he's controlling and he's like manipulative and petty maybe like because I'm I'm pretty quickly I connect God then to like other people who have been in charge and they get all the choices and and they're the ones who decide everything and I think that seems like power hungry forgetting that we're talking about the God of the universe who created all things is actually perfect in how they how he thinks and feels he knows what's going to happen and what's not going to happen. He's in control of those things and that he is full of, one of his great attributes is that he's full of mercy and compassion and goodness and kindness. I think it's by accident that Paul chooses these passages. He says, hey, this, is, this can actually kind of be a hard truth to hold on to. A God who's sovereign over all things, especially when we see bad, hard, evil things around us. So what, what is he doing there? And forget that he is compassionate and merciful. R.C. Sproul says this, why would God ever be under any obligation to give us anything after we have fallen? This helps me, reminds me of this great mercy. Having committed cosmic treason, resulting in the desires of our hearts being, uh, being only wicked continuously. Is it absolutely essential that we understand this? We understand actually our position in this. Uh, because I start believing like, I'm really good. Why wouldn't God just do everything that I wanted? It is absolutely essential that we understand this. God Almighty owes us nothing. We have no claim upon grace. If we had, then we would not be talking about grace, but about justice. Grace, by definition, is something that God is never obligated to give, but something that he gives freely and voluntarily. I asked my friend this week, um, I was talking to a friend on the phone, and I said, hey, how, how do you like reconcile the idea that God is merciful and he chooses people and it seems there's others that aren't in church in the church and how does that he said I have to remember that God has given me the chance and everyone the chance to run to him and we often choose to run away from him he said it reminds me of how incredible it is that God has pursued us and rescued us and given us grace when we he could have just let us run and run and run Reminds me of when you hear the stories of uh, like the, the prodigal sons who run off and the father lets them run off, uh, but the father continues to always be there ready to embrace them, to pursue them, to bring them back. And I think in the picture, I often think that, uh, that God could be this one who has these other intentions and is running after deathly things and in fact forgetting I'm the one who does and he's the one who shows great mercy. And so as we see things like this, we understand he's great mercy and he's good, but also it says he will do what he wills. And his 
mercy on whoever he has wills and he hardens whoever he wills. We see in the story of Pharaoh. So then you might ask the question, so God wills everything? So then why, what matters and what doesn't matter? And also then he holds me accountable to that. He says, Drew, you've run away from me. And I'd say, but you made me run away from you. So Paul, the next question he kind of brings up is that. First, these are helpful for me. So we're going to actually talk more about this kind of tension. This is one of those things in Scripture that there's a, like, real tension that doesn't really get resolved in Scripture because Scripture at times tells us both of these at the same time. It's one that we might actually get to understand better in heaven. Uh, And these are some of the passages that I think of uh, when I think of this. This is in Philippians 2. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my, my presence, but much more in my absence, Here's a passage you might know, right? Work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling. So in Philippians, we're told, do the work to, to move towards God. Work out your salvation. And the next verse is, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it says, hey, work out your salvation. God's going to work out your salvation. Thanks, Philippians. Like, Right? You feel that? I, I assume as we're reading these, you go, how does that work? Because Drew, you often on Sunday morning say, hey, we want, this week I want you to think about how, what does it look like to turn to Jesus, to cling to Jesus, to hold on to him. That's something that you're asking us to do, which scripture asks us to do. It, it asks us to go and make disciples. It, even in this famous verse of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God did this incredible work to give Christ that whoever believes So then, okay, so then like we get to believe that in him would not perish and have eternal life. Even in that passage, we're told God does this work. He's the one who wills us. He picks his promised people and he wants you to pick him as his promised people. There's this this real tension in this. It's okay. We can sit in that. It's very real, but I think it's really important we don't just lean away from who this God really is because it really is incredible. So he continues on. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? What, why do we get fault, right? If he's the one who wills it for, who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump, one vessel of honorable use and one of dishonorable use. He's using this picture of a, of a potter, which is used all over in Jeremiah. We see this great picture of this. Uh, I think, in fact, in Jeremiah, they even like take them to a potter and say, see, this is a picture of God. God makes different things out of his clay. He makes honorable uses and dishonorable uses. Things that are just common use or things that are used in honorable ways that might hold perfume or fancy things or valuable things. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? All right. So his answer to, hey, this seems like you're saying God can do what he wants to do. So then what, why is there fault in me? Why does he get to say you don't, you, you sinned and now there's wrath coming your way? Paul's answer isn't, let me, exp- let me explain to you exactly how those things work together. His answer is, can you trust that God, the creator of all things, knows what he's doing and knows who he's molding and essentially, we've heard over and over, understands how to bring himself glory. This, for me, hits 
so hard in my heart because I so want to be in control. And I go, Paul, but you better explain this to me. You better make this work. He says, I need you to trust the character of who this God is. You're clay, and he's the potter who created you. I want to be in control. I want to be the potter. I, want, I think real freedom and real joy comes from me getting to choose everything. Maybe that is not what I was created for. Maybe I was created to be used in the hands of the God who created me, the potter who made me. In fact, this is the lie that we hear all the way back in the beginning, the one where Adam and Eve turned from God, the beginning of sin is a, is a lie that says, is God for you? Is he really who he says he is? You don't need God. You could do this. You could understand all things yourself and be in control. It's really about you. It's, it's really all about you. It's the lies the serpent creeps in. And he, he shares and they believe and turn in essentially the lies that we believe Every day when we think, yeah, is God really who he is? If I start believing, eh, he's not, he's manipulative and he wants what he wants. And because I'm thinking of all these people I know who are sinners who act the same way, forgetting he's our God. So Paul wants to know this is still the same God who's always been. He's always been in control, still in control. This passage in Isaiah comes to mind. Uh, one that sometimes I have to read um, not so much as an encouragement, it's as a reminder of how my life actually works. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. A reminder that our God, it's like a, it's a different planet, right? Not even a planet, it's beyond a planet. I think, oh, come on God, I think I knew how that was supposed to play out. Forgetting like, He's the one who created it, understands it, knows it. This is hard. This is really hard because I want to know things and I think I know things. And what does it look like to believe God actually knows his plan and knows what's going on and has continued his plan? And so this passage then ends uh, with him quoting some more passages and reminding us that this isn't just a story about the Jewish people, but a story for all people, really. Even us who have he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. He's reminding us, even in Hosea, God is saying, I'm calling everyone. Everyone is for this promised group. I want all of you in this. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. He's saying here there's people who we've said, you don't, get to, you don't get to be promised people. And we're reminded here of this great mercy and compassion. God says, you actually, I get to decide that, and I decide they are my people. The one who you say is not loved and beloved, that woman, I say she is loved. And I'm the one who gets to decide that. That's the one who created love. Those people that you say aren't my sons, I say, yes, you are my sons and daughters. Paul's reminding them this is God who has done this and it's this incredible miracle of mercy that he's done this. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. This word remnant is used sometimes as this spiritual Israel or true Israel, promise Israel, essentially the people who are faithful and are in, are, are in God's family. Only a remnant, of, a remnant of them will be saved for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. 
as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been, we've been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. He wants them to know that there is this incredible mercy and compassion for all people, and that has always been the plan. And the plan is for people to be the promised people of God who put faith in, for us, we say, right, faith in Christ so that we'd be in that. It's not God creating a plan with some people and it not working out because they didn't do the right things. And then God saying, now I got a new plan. It's not, these people are bad. They don't get to be in. It's that all of you always have been my plan. The people who have not been called my people get to be my people. Dr. Adeyemo says this, believers all over the world are among the objects of God's mercy. We are his people, his children from all tribes and nations of Africa. He's writing this to, to his African brothers and sisters. God has called us to be a special people belonging to him. God has called us not because of who we are, but because of who he is, the sovereign God. We have no right to be proud or arrogant. Our salvation is none of our own doing. It is all the divine will of God. And we know this because the story actually continues. In Isaiah, uh, this one of these passages from Isaiah 10, if you continue reading, it says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike, uh, when they strike with the, so the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Remember, the Assyrians are going to come after you. The Egyptians came after you for in a very little while while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as uh, when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. Here's lots of history, right? His staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in the day he was burdened will depart from your shoulder and his yoke, uh, and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. What is going on? It sounds like a death metal song. Here's, here's essentially, right? Here's, this happens over and over in Scripture. God says, uh, I'm going to come and take care of the enemy. And remember, you've had this enemy, and you had an enemy before that enemy, and you had these ones who had this yoke on you, this, this over your neck that was this burden to you, that was holding you, your captives, your exiles, your slaves to these people. This is all language, right? These are all pictures. And he, he, we don't even know this yet. Like, we don't understand. But this is this moment is pointing to this moment, this picture where God says, you don't have to worry about the Assyrians. I'm going to take care of the greatest enemy of all time. I'm going to take care of, of the, the greatest burden around your neck. I'm going to take care of, of all of that. You don't even know that you're carrying some of this sin because I'm going to come and I'm going to take care of Satan and his lies and sin and death. I'm coming to rescue you. I, the sovereign God, the one who can do this, and because you cannot do it, I'm going to do it. Not because you can't do it because uh, you don't have the skills or you haven't tried hard enough, because I'm the one who can rescue you from sin. And he sends Christ to us. The perfect one himself shows, shows off his miracles, his power. He dies on a cross so that we would not die. What mercy and compassion he raises from the dead so that we would have life conquers death and sin. So God gives this promise in Isaiah of this little picture, the shadow of the ultimate picture that one day he will come. And our God doesn't just leave us. He doesn't say, hey, you haven't done all I've asked. He says, I know you're sinners. I know you've run from me and I'm going to pursue you. And I have the choice to pursue you. This is a story of adoption. In a very real sense, when someone adopts a child, they, 
they choose to pick a child and say, I want you in my family. And this is our story of adoption. Our God comes and takes care of the enemy and makes us his family. That's an incredible show of mercy and compassion. A God that I want to know. So as I end our time here, just some things for us, I think, to consider. What I've learned in taking some time to just meditate and consider and pray through this. Three things that I've learned, I think, that come from just this passage so far in Romans 9. As we understand that God's continued plan is happening. That we have a sovereign God who does will what he wills. One of them is that I need and want to get to know God more. I think when I don't know a person, I find this... uh, Probably weekly, I have a moment where I go, I'm sitting with someone and I say, huh, and I think in my head, I, I usually don't say this to you. Sorry if I've ever said this to you. I say, wow, you're actually cooler than I thought you were. <laughs> you're actually like way kinder than I thought you were. Sometimes I'm just, I just get information from like, let's say social media about a person and then I form like an opinion about them. And uh, surprisingly, it almost always happens, they're not nearly as intense in person. Some of you aren't as intense in person as you are on the internet. So I sit down with a friend and I go, oh, you're actually not that fired up about this stuff. You're actually just having like a really rough week. You're actually really compassionate and care about people. And this week I've been really struck by this, uh, of the idea of thinking of our God as a sovereign God, of one who's in control, who actually has, has before time began known what's going to happen, has played these things out. I think, oh, what is he thinking? Maybe if I spend some more time with him, I might actually change that. I might go, oh, you, you're actually very compassionate and loving. You actually know what you're doing. You've shown that over and over and over. It might change how I feel, how I react to that. The second thing that I've uh, found really encouraging is that a reminder that God is powerful. He's the one who could actually put an end to sin and death. That he's in control, that he's merciful and compassionate but very encouraged that God is the same. This reminds us today that God is the same and has the same plan, hasn't changed his plan. Because a God who changes because uh, of the wind or because of uh, culture or because of what's popular or not popular is not a God I want to follow. Our family's been watching the new uh, Percy Jackson series on Disney. And that's just, a ser- you know, has all this old mythology in it. And every God in there is like just so selfish and constantly changing what they think or believe. Like, what a terrible God to have to follow. You never know what they're feeling like that day. And to have a God who hasn't changed and is the same and is merciful and compassionate and just and good, what a gift that we have. And, and lastly, um, oh yeah, and even reminded this, this, this week I was reading, um, I don't know if any of you have ever read the, the Heidelberg Catechism. I know it's a, th- it's a thriller. Um, catechism, if you don't know, is, a, is great. It's a series of usually questions that help you kind of walk through like the, a wider range of how we think about God, the basic doctrines of the church. Some of you might have grown up uh, like reading Luther's catechism. I remember Luther's small catechism. I actually didn't read it when I was supposed to, but now I kind of like reading it. Uh, This is a sweet little book. What it does is it has these great questions that then answer them. And so it's a way for us to learn like theology and doctrine actually has been a a real gift. It gives me words sometimes I don't have. Um, And this is one of the ones on providence. So this idea that God has has control over all things. And so two of the questions, question 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism says, uh, what do you understand about the providence of God? So you might do this like people do this with their kids. So they'd ask that question, the kids would memorize this. God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all 
creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruit and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. That's good news. Really good news. It's not random, but that his fatherly hand. And the next question, 28, is what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity knowing God is in control, thankful in prosperity. It doesn't just build us up and make us proud. Prosperity actually makes us thankful because we know who gave it to us. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love. There's Romans 8. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. That brings me a lot of comfort. And lastly, I learned that it's not about me or my work. This is one that I every day have a moment where I think, I, I think less of myself. I think, what are you doing? People don't want you. You're not valuable. You, you could, your brand could be so much better, <laughs> Drew. And I'm reminded today, we're reminded that God has chosen us. He says, I want you. He's adopted me into his family. I think we often can believe this lie that we don't do enough, that we weren't born in the right family or looking the right way, that we don't know enough, that we haven't worked hard enough, that I'm just not good enough guy or bad enough, or I am a bad enough guy. And that's why. And today we're reminded that that is not how God has chosen you. He's chosen you because he wants you and he loves you and he's shown great mercy to you. And if this was true, then ultimately my life would be a series of me figuring out how I'm better than other people or better than this thing. And instead I can relax and and release myself from that comparison and I can live as a rescued person. A person given goodness and love and purpose and eternity. I'm going to welcome our worship team up here as we take some time now to just worship our God who's good, who's sovereign and in control and compassionate, who's the same and just. Sometimes just to get to know him, sometimes just singing together is an opportunity to get to know him and trust him. A few things to consider here as we respond to the gospel, as we sing together. Uh, There's a few ways in the room we're going to do that. First, just some questions to think of. Have you accepted the mercy of God? God is saying, I want you. He calls us, he says, go tell people this good news that I want them. And they get to say yes to that. How do you feel about God being in control? I can torn. My, I can feel my flesh and my spirit fighting it in on that. How do you feel about it? Who, what do you practically do to know God? How, how do you get to know this good Father who has all things in his hands? What does that look like for you? Is there one person you could be praying for this week, praying that this God who is in control could work in their lives. Some ways we uh, respond to the gospel here is we sing together. Our, our team will lead us in that in a moment. We take communion. It's out in the hallways. Um, and so there's a table with crackers and juice at both sides. Uh, and please, we'd love for you. That's an opportunity to do what Jesus commanded us to do. He says in scripture, take communion, break bread, drink wine to remember that my body was broken, my blood was shed. It's a chance to just stop and remember that core basic Moment in history that changed all things, that he took the wrath that we, we deserved. Also, there's people that would love to pray for you uh, on both sides by the doors for anything. You could, you could ask them to do that. And you can always give out in the box um, out there too. Let me pray for us quick as we continue to worship.
Father, thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your mercy and compassion. That we could all take a breath and know that you have all things in your hands. That I can sleep well at night, that I can sing these songs to you, that I can leave this place knowing that you have us in your hands, that you know what's going to happen, that, and it's, it's good, you're good. I pray that we'd hold tight to you and your goodness. Thank you, Lord. Amen.